This episode of Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Paragon City Games. Paragon City Games in Draper, Utah has a spacious and clean showroom with lots of elbow room for magic events. You'll also find thoughtful accessories like die-hard metal dice and handcrafted wooden deck boxes. If you're near Draper, Utah, Paragon City Games is a wonderful place for the local magic community to gather in. And if you can't make it there in person, be sure to watch their weekly stream at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Card Kingdom. Whether you're looking for Magic the Gathering sealed product or singles you need to complete your deck, Card Kingdom has what you're looking for. With international shipping, my listeners in Canada, Australia, the UK, Germany, Sweden, Brazil, and Belgium can all enjoy receiving packages from Card Kingdom. And if you'd like to support Kitchen Table Magic when shopping at Card Kingdom, please use our affiliate link when you shop. Just go to cardkingdom.com KTM. Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. In this episode, I'm speaking with Richard Garfield, the creator of Magic the Gathering. Richard is fascinated with games, and one day he asked himself, what happens if not all players have the same deck? Richard tells us that the cornerstone of magic, the five flavors of mana, was an idea that he thought about frequently and tinkered with in his other games. Richard shares his thoughts on certain cards, his hopes for the future of magic, and other games he's proud to have made. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the creator himself, Richard Garfield. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang, and I'm here with a very special guest. Sir, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, uh, this is uh, Richard Garfield. I uh, created Magic. I'm speaking to the Richard Garfield, the creator of Magic the Gathering. Richard, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Well, I wanted to jump right in. Could you tell us about what it was like to create this game that we all love? It was an intellectual adventure. It was a very exciting time in my life. I was a, a game creator for a long time and had lots of designs in my closet. Some of them I considered publishable, some not. There was this moment, uh, this aha, where uh, I realized that not all players had to have the same deck. And that idea consumed my life for the next uh, year or two. And then once it took off, of course, it consumed my entire life. <laughs> yes, it definitely did consume your life. And it also consumed the lives of many people within the community around the world. What were your initial concepts for coming up with a trading card game that could do all of these complex things? It's sometimes sobering to look back at that time and remember that when I thought about that concept, I wasn't entirely sure you could design a game like that. Now, it seems obvious there's uh, uh, many games that follow it. And also, I've learned the right parallels between other games like, uh, say, uh, uh, war games uh, where you can buy your own units or something like that. But at the time, I was thinking, well, you know, it was like if you have your own deck and you're playing poker, uh, that's not 
super exciting. Uh, and if you have your own deck and you're playing bridge, well, that's not very exciting. And so the parallels I was drawing weren't yielding fruit. But I, I took this idea and tried to combine it with other games I had in the closet and with varying amounts of success. Uh, and after a few tries, uh, I attached it to this game, uh, which the playtest name was Five Magics. And until that point, it had a lot of the flavor that Magic ultimately acquired, but it had none of the mechanics other than this relationship between mana and land. And uh, everything sort of fell into place. An early name for the game of Magic the Gathering was called Mana Clash. And you also said that another working title of yours was Five Magics. How did you settle on this concept of these five colors or these five flavors of mana? Well, uh, the five flavors of mana, sort of uh, the roots of them extends back into prehistory of my game design. I think at some point I started uh, working with five colors and building this mythology around them where you had relationships between all the colors and antagonisms between all the colors in this uh, neat symmetric pattern. And a lot of it was done at a subconscious level because uh, my primary concern is generally the mechanics of the game and the flavor of the game I'm concerned with, but it's usually a more intuitive process. And, and so I think a lot of the richness in the colors of magic comes from the fact that, that I had been sort of tinkering with it both in my game design and in my subconscious for eight years, say, previous to magic. The five colors of magic are white, blue, black, red, and green. Were those the original five or did you adjust them along the way? No, those were the original five. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I never really considered any other colors. Uh, and and uh, the relationship with the lands... Uh, that was that was all all put into place before magic was there, and the only one I had any hesitation with was islands because uh, um, islands you can walk to all the other lands you couldn't walk to an island, and so I, I wasn't really sure about that. But uh, I went with it. Were they going to be oceans or lakes or something else? Uh, yeah, I think I think oceans I had considered, uh, but then they aren't lands. So mm -hmm. that makes sense. The characteristics of these five colors, do they hold true today in modern Magic the Gathering, or were they very similar to how you started developing the five colors of magic back in the day? They are similar. The relationship between the flavor and the mechanics have been moved around some, but uh, a lot of the broad concepts are the same. So, for example, card draw used to be specifically blue, and, uh, and, and that's been moved around some because it was too rich a mechanic just to lock up with blue. And then some of the flavors have been lost. Like, uh, I'm not sure whether, well, I guess islands being associated with water and air, I, I think that still holds true. And uh, earth being associated with fire and, uh, 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 sorry, mountains being associated with both fire and earth, I think that holds true. And then there's been some uh, aspects of it which have been added over time, like uh, like red was destruction, and it became more generally emotion to contrast with the intellect in blue. Richard, in early sets, you always designed with cycles. So there was the Moxon cycle. There were also the boons, the one mana instance. We know them best as healing salve, ancestral recall, dark ritual, lightning bolt, and giant growth. Yeah. And what was your thought about designing those five boons? I thought in fleshing out the colors that making something which represented the essence of that color in each would make a good uh, skeleton for the game. And so oftentimes I tried to make uh, cycles to do that. Obviously, you don't see cycles with every card, but occasionally I would come up with a mechanic and thought, oh, maybe we can uh, duplicate this for each in a way which uh, resonates with that color. 
So with the boon, I was just looking for uh, this this idea of, of one mana gives you three of something uh, was probably misguided in that they were widely varied in power. But uh, the essence of it, it made it so that what I was doing stood out. So people saw the the cycle in a way that if you got if you spent one mana and say got two cards, it wouldn't have been as clear, um, and that still would have been too good. Uh, another technique I liked was not the cycle, but the reflected enemies. And so that's where you get the Lord of the Pit uh, sitting opposite Force of Nature. I liked taking cards which were distinctive in one color and making a parallel to them in the enemy color in sort of an idea that enemies grow to reflect one another. And so another example of that was Sarah Angel and uh, and the Vampire. They're both uh, four fours. They're both flying, uh, and uh, and they both have a little bit of a, a little power within their uh, within their color. Yeah, absolutely. Sarah Angel and Singer Vampire. When I was a kid, and I didn't know the rules of magic, but I saw those two cards, and I almost saw them as diametrically opposed. The flavor that is an angel representing white, and then also being a really big angel, a 4-4, and then also having vigilance. The mechanic of vigilance itself seemed very like it was on guard, it was on watch. And then the vampire, whenever it killed something, got a plus one, plus one counter, so that it would grow. It was leeching life force away from its enemy. Yeah, I really liked uh, making these parallel cards, and my favorites were the ones that were in, uh, in in opposing colors. Yeah. How do you feel about the reception of these boons throughout the history of magic? Sadly, healing salve is not particularly powerful, but ancestral recall is incredibly coveted now, banned to the most degree. Uh, Dark ritual also very powerful and somewhat restricted. And then we also have lightning bolt, which is incredibly versatile, used in almost every format, everywhere, all the time. It's basically magic player's favorite card. And then giant growth, it's almost like a utility, a good solid combat tricks for beginners as well as veterans. I got one of them right. <laughs> I mean, there's two, there's two ways to think about the boons. There's uh, the flavor concept, and then there's uh, the balance. Uh, the balance of magic has changed a lot over the years, and people have asked me what I think about the balance of the game originally. And I'm not disappointed with the balance in general with how it was launched. Um, you need broader differences in powers when people are not as good. And uh, we were good enough, actually. We weren't pro quality by any means, but we were way better than most players at the beginning. And uh, and that was illustrated by the fact that uh, when we toured around and went to game stores, people would bring us their champion decks and we would uh, dispatch them with all common decks. And they were amazed because, wow, these are just common cards. And it's like, yeah, you know, you get giant growths and bears together, they can uh, really do quite a lot. And so in those days, cards like Lightning Bolt or Ancestral Recall that are just plain good didn't really stand out. People didn't even really understand in those days how good Ancestral Recall was because three cards, well, and in their decks, they were playing with such garbage that three cards was actually not good. It's like, ooh, three walls of wood. So uh, they're they're completely inappropriate for today. And in fact, you know, once the Pro Tour rolled around, they were completely inappropriate. They broke the rule, which uh, I was mentioning earlier, which was if everybody's playing with them, you don't want them in the environment. If Ancestral Recall is there, you don't want it in the environment because everybody's going to play it these days. And when it was launched, that wasn't the case. That is so fascinating. And Richard, I also want to ask you about the creation of perhaps Magic the Gathering's most infamous card, Black Lotus. How did you create that and how did you come up with that in the first sets as a mechanic in the first sets? 
I'm not sure where the flavor came from, but the Black Lotus was an extension of this idea of, with the Moxes, where land was this utility. You could only play one per turn, and it generated mana throughout the course of the game. Uh, Moxes cost zero, so they were very much like a land. And then this idea that you'd have something which was disposable and give you a small boost, but then it was gone, uh, was a pretty natural idea. And again, the, the balance here for modern sensibilities was off. Uh, these would break the environment currently. When the game first came out, they were fine. And in fact, to illustrate how fine they were, I've got two two stories of that. Uh, one was that that I would play people who was very excited to get their moxes, and they would open the game with a couple moxes, and then and then throw out something big, and then that that next turn I would terror it, and now you know I've got this handful of all common cards, and they've got you know, nothing left, and usually they threw a, a couple giant growths on there just so they could waste extra cards. Uh, but uh, and then the other uh, illustration was even before that, before lotuses were recognized as being really powerful. There was actually a tournament which uh, took place in New York. And uh, at this time, we were doing the Rochester draft. So that's uh, where you lay the cards out and everybody takes turns picking them. A Black Lotus was on the table and didn't get picked for a while. And I mean, that's how early it was. It was, uh, but, uh, but it was a real thing. This was a, you know, this was a tournament. One of the people from R&D was shaking their head after and saying, I can't believe that Black Lotus sat there for so long. And one of the people who was, uh, was helping them said, yeah, I love Black Lotus. Turn one, Black Lotus. Wallowood, Wallowood, Wallowood. So. <laughs> Uh, getting back to my mocking wall of wood, uh, and uh, and so that's how poorly understood it was. Is that uh, it was not drafted early. If people were drafting it early, they would think that his best use was to uh, you know get get all your walls of wood in play. That is incredible. Randy Bueller describes some of his early tournament play and tournament success as uh, turn one Lanawar Elf, turn two Urnum Jin. And if it was Black Lotus into Urnum Jin turn one, uh, that would be pretty insane. And people yes. didn't see that mechanic. They dropped their walls. And surprisingly, walls aren't really played anymore. <laughs> no, no. Um, dropping the big creatures was one of the reasons why there was such cheap creature destruction back in the day. And there still is uh, uh, cheap creature destruction, but this idea that you have terror, which costs two and can destroy anything except a black creature, mm -hmm. uh, that would sort of dare to hold things into check. Uh, as magic matured, the developers correctly, I think, wanted to take a little pressure off the big creatures and make it so it was a little more wor worth more. And so they made the, the destruction a little bit uh, harder to manage. But uh, I, I wanted to have this move and counter move where whatever you did, there was a cheap answer to it. And so was I carrying the answers or was I carrying the threats? Richard, I wanted to ask you about your early process in bringing magic to life. What was it like sending those early sets of alpha and beta to the printers? It was very exciting, very stressful, but in a good way uh, time because there were constantly obstacles being thrown in our way, which we had to manage, which nobody had any experience uh, managing and, and oftentimes nobody ever had before. Uh, so... For example, this even this uh, process of randomizing, it was not easy. When I play tested it, 
I used the black garbage bag method of randomization. And so we tested it via via one mechanism, but that's very different than what we had to end up using, which was a much flatter distribution uh, where every deck has a prescribed number of commons, uncommons, and rares. And then uh, you could easily make mistakes in the collation and make it so that people ended up with, you know, all blue cards or something like that. And uh, while I didn't mind the flat distribution, of course, uh, you know, ending up with a deck of all land or all blue cards, of course, was not accept- was not acceptable. So we, we were constantly being uh, confronted with these with these challenges, which, as a math grad student, and uh, and since it's a completely new uh, genre, uh, we weren't equipped to handle. I've spoken to early players like Chris Pakula and Randy Bueller and Brian Devin Marshall and Brian Weissman about players getting product in early packs. And sometimes in some regions, people wouldn't even be able to see half of the cards. They wouldn't know what was contained in those early sets. And it was, it almost like was a mechanism to allow this game to go viral because people had to physically travel and interact with other Magic players to get the full story. Yes. Uh, yeah, that, that is an example of the collation issues, which is just one of the many, many issues we, we have. I mean, just acquiring art was an epic battle. But yeah, there were, there was a collation problem which uh, made it so that there were uh, booster type A and booster type B, and uh, people would get all of booster type A. Uh, and uh, and there were rumors floating around that this was intentional to make people travel. It was not. Uh, it was uh, uh, any 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 conspiracy uh, always uh, look to uh, stupidity first. And uh, somewhere along the line, somebody was stupid, and uh, we ended up with this. Uh, maybe maybe. It did help. It's hard to it's hard to tell. Uh, my philosophy back in the day uh, was that uh, we did not publish any lists, so this probably fed into that belief. We we kept it secret what was out there, and my theory was that it made it made the world something which people would explore and share and build a community around discovering. Um, it was pretty early, though, that, that I changed my mind on that, and we published lists. And, and the, basically, that was just – I think it's arguable whether keeping the list published unpublished in the beginning was the correct move. I think it probably was, but it was clearly not the right move to, to keep it secret because, because once it was popular enough, people would just bust them open and figure it out, and it's just giving people busy work. Uh, and uh, although it was funny looking at the early, early card list on uh, – on, in magazines like Scry were often incomplete or incorrect. Richard, what was your feeling to be able to see Magic the Gathering explode in popularity and become a worldwide phenomenon to the point where you couldn't even make enough cards to fulfill the demand? It was overwhelming and uh, and perpetually surprising to me. Uh, for years and years, it was uh, like I, I would jerk awake and, and think, wow, what's going on? And, and be surprised by uh, this new level it had gotten to, or, or it would hit me in the gut how big the game had gotten. And uh, it was overwhelming. That's incredible. Also, another huge facet of the game is the magic art. This big piece of real estate smack dab in the middle of the card is the art frame. And we have the mechanics and of course, we have the card itself. But magic art has absolutely captivated the entire community and the entire world. What were your thoughts early on in putting that much art onto the card? I don't think I ever considered anything different. The way I viewed the art did change over time, but uh, the art as a tool to help you play was really important to me. What I mean there is that uh, if you look at a game, I don't know if you've ever played a game like, uh, even a game like chess with generic pieces. If, if you play with an art set of chess, it's often 
takes a little bit of getting used to to recognize, oh, yeah, that's my bishop. Oh, I forgot that was my bishop. And uh, you constantly have to sort of relearn things. And the same thing if you play with uh, with a standard deck of cards, but it's one of those art sets that doesn't have a real queen or a king and it's got you know some piece of art on each. Again, it's more difficult to play. And you can imagine that if a regular deck of cards or chess, chess only has six different pieces, if that is harder to play without this iconic, constant physical form, a game like Magic with hundreds of different pieces, and now thousands, now tens of thousands, becomes impossible to play. I mean, it's just a huge boon to have these pictures. So, it's more than just flavor. Uh, it's a, a mechanical asset. And in fact, to the degree that when I did Arabian Nights and I sent it out for playtesting, I told the playtesters we didn't have time to do... It, it, it's well known that in the original Magic, I used uh, art from comic books. And so, we used like Calvin and Hobbes and things like that. Uh, didn't have time for that for Arabian Nights. But I told them to put any picture on it, even if it was a picture completely unrelated, like uh, clip arts of cars. That was fine because that helps you. You see it and you say, oh, yeah, the car, that's the, the NAF's ASP. Every time I see a car, I know what it is. It, uh, it just helps you learn the game. So mechanically, I think I was always interested in this, uh, this functionality that it was providing. As far as flavor, the philosophy on art has changed a lot over the years, but originally what I wanted to do was leave as much leeway to the artist as possible because artists are, by definition, creative folks, or at least they're trying to be creative. And so I found it against the nature of their endeavor to tell them exactly what to draw. So what I wanted to do was give them the briefest description of what, what it was and let them figure out something creative. And this ended up, uh, you know, some of the art was not as good because of that, but the highs were much higher. Uh, uh, the artists were often inspired by that and uh, went to places which, uh, which the designers and developers uh, wouldn't have anticipated and it profited from that. And I also uh, encouraged them to all have their own styles. And so we really liked the fact that Drew Tucker has this, this sort of wild abstract look, whereas uh, Quentin Hoover has sort of the stylized graphic comics look and uh, other people are more realistic. In the long run, this didn't stand up and it has more of a look now as the uh, company wanted to make a product which uh, looked more consistent and had more uh, of a style people could recognize. This is magic. The very low-touch art descriptions uh, uh, disappeared. You can't really build a world where everybody is drawing their own interpretation of what a goblin looks like. And at the beginning, all the goblins looked way different. You couldn't tell they were the same race at all. I think that was an inevitable change. I, I do like the old days, though. And yes, all of those factors really contributed to the charm of Magic the Gathering, and it did absolutely take the world by storm. Richard, since then, you have gone on to design other games as well, such as Robo Rally and Treasure Hunter and King of Tokyo. Could you talk about some of those? Very early on, I took a step back from Magic and uh, because, because I thought Magic was too big a job, really, for one person. I didn't want it all filtered through one uh, the creator, I thought that would be limiting. And, uh, and so I tried to really set it up so that, uh, uh, there was a lot of people who could do it. And, and that was because I wanted to focus on developing all sorts of different games. Uh, I'm very excited about games as a whole. And so I've, uh, made a lot of, uh, different board and card games, uh, 
One of them uh, that has been particularly successful is a King of Tokyo, which is sort of a, a Yahtzee-style monster destruction game. The way it came about was I was asking myself how to make Yahtzee interactive. Oftentimes, uh, I work from mechanics that exist and sort of ask myself what works and what doesn't for them. And I think Yahtzee is a brilliant game. Its only flaw really is that it is not very interactive. And that's not a, a terrible flaw for me. I don't mind a golf-like game, so to speak. But uh, for a lot of people, that's that's why they they aren't so interested in it. So King of Tokyo was was my answer for that. King of Tokyo, uh, each of the players is a monster, and uh, uh, they're uh, trying to be the best monster at destroying Tokyo. Uh, if they can kill all the other monsters, that's also okay. Uh, you roll the dice Yahtzee fashion and either use it to uh, pound on Tokyo or pound on the other monsters or get energy and buy uh, upgrades to make your monster more powerful. One of my uh, favorite flavor cards in it uh, is there's uh, the card herbivore, but it's spelt well. There's herbivore spelt H E R B, where you don't want to attack the other monsters. But then there's herbivore U R B A, so that's uh, based on urban, and uh, you get points for destroying uh, Tokyo. Uh, another recent game which I'm uh, quite excited about was uh, Treasure Hunter, which uh, is a drafting game, and I've really my favorite thing in trading card games is drafting. I love of drafting. And so uh, I've been very interested in this sort of genre of uh, booster draft style games that have come out. In Treasure Hunter, you're competing for a number of uh, treasures that are out there. And you're drafting from a set of cards that will get you access to those treasures or protect you against the goblins. And uh, so, for example, uh, there's a there's uh, the red cards, and they give you access to the red treasure. And whoever has the lowest total of red cards gets the low red treasure. Whoever has got the highest gets the high red treasure. Now, while you're drafting, and there's also blue and green. Uh, so when you're drafting, you'll look and you'll say, oh, the low red treasure is very good, and I've got the one red card. So that is going to help me get that as long as I don't get stuck with any other red cards at the end. Uh, so then as you're drafting along, you've got your one and then you realize you count ahead and you say, oh, I'm going to end up with this this high red card. Uh, maybe I draft this action card, which will allow me to get rid of a card and then I'll lock in that low one. Or maybe I should try to draft some more high red cards or a red doubler and uh, go high. And then sometimes the treasures you're going for are not good. Like it'll be instead of uh, plus 10 points, it'll be minus five points or something like that. And so then nobody wants to get red low or nobody wants to get red high. And so it makes it so that the uh, dynamics of drafting changes every time. And then further than that, uh, uh, this is the part which really excites me with it is a lot of the treasures key off your future drafts. So you might get a treasure, which its value is based on how many red cards you get in some future hand. And so you might be in a position where, well, the red treasure, the red treasure I'm going for is not very exciting, but I've got this previous treasure, which makes it so that I'm just rewarded for getting red. So uh, this is probably the best time for me to use it. I don't want to wait till next round where it's the last round and the high red treasure is, you know, uh, the minus five points because then, then I basically lost this. 
That's so interesting that you talk about that kind of gaming dynamic. In every game, there seems to be some kind of logic and some kind of backward induction about what other players are going to behave or act as. And then also, there's also some like this concept of a meta game, which I think is so present in Magic: The Gathering and other games as well. Yeah, uh, and and I should actually, I, it's interesting to contrast it with uh, Seven Wonders, which uh, I mean, I love Seven Wonders. I think it was a, a wonderful game, and it really scratched my drafting itch. But uh, in Seven Wonders, you draft all the cards every time, except for the very last round. And for me, that became too scientific. I prefer more of a poker-like game where you you don't know everything that's out there, and you have to uh, deduct based on what you've seen and how people are behaving, uh, rather than knowing there's all these cards out there and one disappeared. So, one of those three people has it or something like that. So, that's what I was really going for uh, with Treasure Hunter was uh, something that was a, 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 with a little more variance in the drafting. Fascinating. Richard, jumping back to Magic the Gathering, I understand that you don't work too much on the game and that you touch on it every once in a while. What are some of your thoughts about how people play Magic today in the modern era? I'm I'm always excited by the ways casual players play, and so seeing the development of uh, how big Commander Magic has has uh, has gotten to the point where it's actually acknowledged by Wizards, which uh, sort of uh, blew me away that they actually started making products for it and uh, supporting it um, because they were so focused on uh, competitive Magic for so long. I really like when I see new modes of Magic evolve, new formats that people play. I always have loved the wacky draft styles. Uh, so, so the booster draft is is hard to beat. It's such a, a quick and easy and understandable way to play. But uh, back in the day, I made um, many, many different drafts, uh, uh, including ones where you divide the cards into two piles and one person would choose. And, uh, and uh, I had the Monte Carlo draft where you uh, had – slots two through 12 out and you would roll two dice. And if you liked the card there, you would take it. Otherwise, you could re-roll up to twice. Uh, So again, a Yahtzee-style mechanic. And every time a card was rejected, you add a new card to it. So it would get juicier and juicier. And if uh, uh, it got to it, you know, might get to a point where you get, oh, I'll get five cards here. Well, I guess I can play those. And and so so I love uh, wacky drafts. Uh, I like casual play. Uh, And and I particularly, I also like it when people take these casual methods and begin playing them seriously to see how they evolve. I like uh, drafting cubes. It was, it was a very uh, interesting uh, evolution in the game. Will Wizards ever release a cube product? I know that the Magic Online cube is incredibly popular, but as a paper product, it doesn't seem to exist. I've always been talking with people who are very interested in cube that perhaps it could be a set product that's at a higher price point that people can just sleeve up and play. Um, I, I think that would be a wonderful product, and uh, I, I certainly can't say whether Wizards uh, would do it. Uh, I would have said that they wouldn't have supported Commander, and I would have been wrong. Uh, and uh, and so, who knows where they'll go in the future? But uh, um, it's it's pretty important to try to keep your audience focused. The more different versions of a game you support, the more you fragment uh, the players. And that's particularly important for a paper game where uh, you want your friends and the people you run into to be playing the same game. So uh, so even though I think uh, the Cube is a, an excellent product and, uh, and, and I would be very excited by that, uh, it does have to be balanced against the fact that it's like if you throw out one more thing, well, maybe there'll be two people who want to play this and they'll invest in it 
it, but then the rest of their group still wants to do this and they're playing commander and then that just makes the whole environment worse. So uh, these are the sort of uh, equations which are probably going through the developers' minds. And one thing that you touched on, Richard, earlier was just the explosion of the popularity of the game and also the popularity of competitive play. Competitive play has really created this top-down filter of casual players learning in a meta sort of way how to play the game. Uh, I'm a big fan of competitive play. Uh, I I think that uh, when Magic first decided to jump in with both feet to the competitive play environment, there was some worry that it would make the game too serious. And that is not an entirely unwarranted worry because casual play is, is so important to the game. But if you support it correctly, the idea would be it would be like the NBA, where the NBA is very serious, but it doesn't mean that there isn't casual basketball play. Making it so that people have access to leagues and Friday Night Magic and different formats of play, which are more casual, but it's attached to the skeleton of very serious play really helps the product as a whole. It makes it feel like uh, it, it makes it feel very rich. Um, I've read lots of chess and bridge and go and uh, you know, even uh, domino strategy books. And, and I haven't played all that much chess and bridge and go and dominoes, but the existence of this large body of thought on it is very exciting to me as a player and makes it so that my casual play in all those is richer. That is so cool. And also, what do you think about the state of MTG finance? I know a lot of competitive play does affect the price of cards and price of singles. And sometimes the price of these cards make it unaccessible for newer players to join the game at a competitive level. Well, I'm not sure where the game is right now because I'm not plugged into the finances of, the, of, uh, of Magic. However, my general philosophy was that uh, you want to make it so that you can be competitive at a cost which is comparable to other hobbies which have comparable depth. We would actually compare it to how much it costs to play tennis for a year or golf. And uh, we wouldn't want it to be more expensive than that or skiing or something like that. You know, if it, if it was a chunk of that, that, that seemed reasonable. So one of the ways for me to take the temperature of the competitive environment is to look at the most expensive decks and ask how much they cost. And if that cost is too high, yeah, I think that's a bad thing. Um, but, uh, if it's pricey, but pricey compared to you know another $20 game or a $50 game or something like that, that's okay because this is not just a game which you buy and you play on Friday night and then you might pull it out in another month. This is a, this is a hobby. And, uh, and so pricing it accordingly is reasonable. And, and, and it's, it is important though that, uh, that if people do play it just as a game – that they can. And, and I think that, uh, I think that's possible. They may feel frustrated that they can't be competitive, but they can still, uh, you know, draft the cards they've gotten or play with a very limited environment with their friends. I know, you know, many, uh, groups that, uh, that play, have played with the same set of cards forever. And, uh, and occasionally when a set comes out, they, you know, buy a few new booster packs and add it in, but, you know, they've, they've made their own world and, uh, and, and, uh, that's great. People should sort of take ownership of their own play experience. If you want to join the, the pro tour or something like that, you will have to pay a little more. 
as the creator of this game and your fascination and love for the mechanics of the game, drafting really is a strong and fair way for all players of all skill sets to be able to enter the game and have somewhat of a level playing field. And I think that might be also indicative of why Wizards of the Coast has recently phased out modern Pro Tours and things like that. That if you're going to be playing in the Pro Tour, it's going to be a standard limited draft format and also a standard constructor, which is much more accessible. I know that a lot of vintage, eternal, and legacy players lament the fact that these cards are fading away and drying up and sometimes these decks are the cost of a car and modern now is maybe the cost of uh, rent. <laughs> so it's starting to get up there for some of these longer lasting eternal formats. Yeah, the, the eternal formats are, uh, I've, I've got not much opinion on how much they cost because uh, because that, that's a weird area. Um, they can't print more without upsetting people, and they, you know, and 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 so the, the, what you really what you have to do is is make it so that the cards that are available can be played by people for a reasonable price. And if they want to play seriously, that they can play that for a reasonable price, which may be different than what they're used to, but still. For the draft, I, I will point out also that uh, um, some people view draft as being ex- uh, expensive because you have to buy a pack every time you play. Uh, but of course, that's that's not necessary uh, in the sense that if you have some friends who want to play, you can draft the same cards again and again and again. And uh, that, I mean, that's what I do, right? I've got boxes of cards uh, and and occasionally I'll get new cards, but I, I don't feel obligated to. I can just, you know, if we wanted to play Magic, we we can grab a whole bunch of old random cards uh, and and divide them up into booster packs and draft. And, uh, and that's a, a fun way to go and, and very inexpensive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Richard, I wanted to ask you some rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Uh, okay. Okay, great. Richard, rapid fire question number one. Of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, which is your favorite color and why? I usually answer that that uh, I like whatever color people aren't playing. I like to try to make it work. But uh, if if I avoid that uh, that that sort of cheap answer, I, I probably go with blue because blue is where so many of my weird and wacky and meta effects went, and I particularly like meta effects. That's great. And Richard, if you would pair blue with another color combination or two other color combos to make either a guild or a shard, which would you choose? Oh, I, I think I probably go control. Uh, that's probably my nature, uh, and so and so I'd probably go white, uh, and uh, yeah, I might go white. I might go black too. I like I like screwing with the opponent. Uh, so. <laughs> so you would be white, blue, black, which is Esper. Oh, okay, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Richard, rapid fire question number two: If you could change something about Magic: The Gathering, what would it be? And I know this might be a bit unfair, <laughs> but uh, humorous. <laughs> Well, uh, I guess maybe maybe I would change the. I would harken back to what I was just talking about, which is is drafting. Uh, I think that there's a cultural gap in drafting where people feel like they have to get new cards every time. I don't think that's necessary, and uh, I think it should be viewed. Uh, well, I guess I guess uh, cubes are like that, where people make their own draft environments. I think cubes should be more common and. Uh, not even cubes which are established, but just sort of random cubes with just random cards. And if you like it, draft it again. That's really cool. I like that answer, Richard. Okay, question number three. If you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? Oh, yeah, that's a 
what, what could I give? Yeah. Um, I would give, I guess, uh, yeah, I'd give them all, uh, all entry into a, a, a vast casual tournament uh, that uh, that they could play. Uh, I, I like the idea of a of a game event and uh, getting everybody together to play games. Although, if I were going to send them to the so yeah, let's say say a, a ticket to a game event which they could go to and play games, and they could play Magic in any way they liked, but they could also explore the huge world of games out there from, uh, you know, poker to Settlers of Catan. Wonderful. I love that. Richard, question number four. This one also might be a little bit unfair to ask you. What do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering? Well, uh, I've always hoped that Magic would be an evergreen game. It's clearly in the position where it could be because uh, because you have people playing the game who weren't born when it came out. Um, and, uh, and so games are this magical uh, medium in that in that you have these games like Scrabble or or poker or chess, which uh, never ever die. They're just always they're always fascinating and the more you know about them, the better they get. And that's contrast with a lot of a lot of other media in that um, a, a movie you like, for example, uh, is only so rewatchable and it it does get better each time. But but its curve is way different than a game. A game actually just keeps on getting better if it's if it's good. So what I hope is that magic is able to uh, is able to survive the eons like that. I think magic has the depth to do that, but it is more of a challenge than a game like Scrabble because because it's sort of being piloted uh, and uh, and uh, and so it's at the mercy of the mistakes which uh, the designers and developers make. Uh, and uh, they have made mistakes, uh, but they've also corrected them. And uh, the game uh, the game's following is. Uh, Strong enough that uh, that they've been able to weather the mistakes and get to the uh, get to the corrections, and so I hope that uh, that maintains. Wonderful. And last, Richard, do you have any asks or requests of the listening audience, like where they can find you on social media? Yeah, so I've got a Facebook page which uh, I support lightly, and uh, and if they were interested in that, they're certainly welcome to to see what I'm saying. Um, and then at some point, I I will get back to podcasting. I've got a set of podcasts on uh, threedonkeys.com, which is uh, uh, Three Donkeys is the company with which I do most of my game publishing these days. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. You can find Richard on Facebook, and most recently you wrote uh, an article called "The Game Player's Manifesto." It's fascinating, and I really encourage all game players and also game designers to read and think about. They're really important issues to talk about. So, yeah, absolutely. And we'll have links to all of these in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. Richard, I wanted to take a moment just to acknowledge you, and also really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart, and also from the bottoms of the hearts of all these different Magic players out there. Thank you for creating the game that has touched our lives, given us hours of enjoyment, changed the way we think about things, formed new friendships. I know that I have formed many new friendships. And also, without you creating the game, there would be no podcast called Kitchen Table Magic to talk to you about it on. So, thank you very much, Richard, for your contribution. Oh, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you. One of the the things I think that brought me to magic design in the first place was my love of tinkering with games. Uh, I, I like not only designing them, but but tinkering with them. And uh, uh, so I would play chess with a wacky rule that I would invent. And so I think 
I think with Magic, I, I, I had this idea that uh, players could design their own game by adding their own cards. And it would be really nice. And, and people respond to that uh, um, and they, they like that. I think I think it would be nice if people took it to the next level and started really like constructing their play environment, making, uh, you know, making their own modes of play and, uh, and exploring the wonderful world of games outside of Magic as well as within Magic. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Richard Garfield. Richard has a website and a blog at 3donkeys.com. Richard also wrote an article on Facebook titled A Game Player's Manifesto. I'll have a link to that article in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. Special thanks to Laura Cornejo and Mox Boarding House Bellevue for providing a private room for Richard and I to record in. Mox Boarding House in Seattle and Bellevue both have private rooms to rent. More information can be found at moxboardinghouse.com slash private hyphen rooms. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Card Kingdom. Cardkingdom.com is a great place to shop for Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, pre-constructed decks, and gaming accessories. They have a huge selection of singles from the latest sets to an ever-flowing supply of modern and legacy staples. Card Kingdom also loves to buy Magic cards. They'll offer you cash or in-store credit for your Magic singles. And if you're new to Magic, you'll love playing any one of the 36 new pre-constructed battle decks built by Card Kingdom. Sign up for Card Kingdom's email newsletter to receive coupon codes and deck techs by Magic Pro Chris Van Meter. You'll get access to Card Kingdom's private reserve, which are special deals for chase rares at significantly discounted prices. Card Kingdom has so much to offer, so I hope you'll check them out. And if you'd like to support Kitchen Table Magic when shopping at Card Kingdom, please use our affiliate link. Just go to cardkingdom.com KTM. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic was brought to you by Paragon City Games. The Kitchen Table Magic podcast has been all about the origins of the game and members of the community. And as a community, we've come a long way since the game first started. Apart from the kitchen table, the only other places in your local community to play Magic are at local game stores. And that's why places like Paragon City Games is so important for our community. At Paragon City Games, you'll find a spacious and clean showroom with lots of elbow room for Magic events. You'll find thoughtful accessories like die-hard metal dice and handcrafted wooden boxes. You'll find a huge supply of legacy, modern, and standard staples, sealed product, and tabletop games. It's places like Paragon City Games that allow local communities to gather in. And if you can't make it there in person, please be sure to watch their weekly stream at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames. Remember to spread the love with a like on Facebook and a follow on Twitter for Paragon City Games. They also have great online reviews and that shows their commitment to excellent customer service for their player community. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Season 2 finale of Kitchen Table Magic. If you're a new listener to the show, welcome, and I hope you're loving the interviews. KTM is a fledgling podcast, but in the past year, tens of thousands of listeners have found the show. I want to make a podcast that's stellar in quality and meaningful in content. I'm now preparing for Season 3, and my Patreon supporters will not only be helping me make the show, they'll be getting early access when Season 3 premieres in the fall. If you would like to support the show, head on over to patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. For just a few bucks a month, you'll be getting access to extra audio content, behind the scenes show notes, and special gifts for my interviews. 
Patreon supporters at the $6 level get special gifts from my interviews. Richard and I have a very special gift for our Patreon supporters, a signed copy of the unhinged rare Richard Garfield PhD. It has a special card frame and a super broken ability. You may play cards as though they were other magic cards of your choice with the same mana cost. Mana cost includes color, you can't choose the same card twice. And the flavor text reads, And ye he doth spake, let there be magic. If you want to see the card, head over to cardkingdom.com and type in Richard in the search box. All of my current Patreon supporters are getting one, and new supporters at the $6 level and higher will also get this very special gift. But hurry, I have very limited quantities of this gift. Head on over to patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. Your financial contribution goes to making the show better and keeping it running by paying for audio equipment, software, and server costs. I would like to thank all of my Patreon supporters, Brian, James L, Marcus, Alex, Trevor, Caitlin, Mark, Aaron M, Neil, James G, Aaron C, Jonathan, Corey, Chad, and James E for your generous contribution. Your support of Kitchen Table Magic allows me to share stories about the amazing people in the Magic the Gathering community with the world. Thank you. I want to thank everyone that tuned in to listen to Season 2 of Kitchen Table Magic. And as we close Season 2, it's also KTM's first birthday. Exactly one year ago, Kitchen Table Magic released the first three episodes with Travis Wu, Christine Sprankle, and Adam Yurchek. I'm moved by all of the listener support with messages on Twitter, Facebook, and Patreon. I want to thank all of my guests and how they generously shared with the community their lives and told stories for the show. Tim Shields, Aaron Campbell, Cedric Phillips, James Lee, Brad Rutherford, JC Tao, David Ochoa, Sean Penrod, Mel Lee, Pip Doherty, Forthos Mike, Marshall Sutcliffe, Rich Hagen, Brian David Marshall, Randy Bueller, Brian Weissman, Frank Stanley, Jimmy Wong, Eric Klug, Corey Schuster of Scryfall, Emma Handy, The Professor, and Richard Garfield. Thank you so much for being the cast of Season 2. I want to give a big shout out to the Facebook groups Magic the Seattling and Magic for Good. These were the two Facebook groups that I polled long ago to come up with a name for this show, Kitchen Table Magic. I also want to thank and acknowledge mtgcast.com, the largest network of magic podcasts for having me in your lineup. Our theme song is called Play the Game and was composed by Antracto. You can check out all of Antracto's music at soundcloud.com slash Antracto. Add music by Joaquim Karud, Nikolai Aidlas, and Jazar. Special thanks to my sponsors, Paragon City Games and Card Kingdom. The support from these sponsors keep this show running. I also want to thank my wonderful Patreon supporters. You are the flash on my Snapcaster Mage, my plus one toughness on my Tarmogoyf, the flying and vigilance on my Sarah Angel. You make this show what it is, and I do this for the listener. Thank you all so much for your generous support. Show notes for each episode are at kitchentablemagic.org. All the behind-the-scenes show notes are at patreon.com slash kitchentablemagic. I'm your host, Sam Tang, and I want to thank you all so much for listening to Season 2. Season 3 will be released in the fall of 2017. For now, though, a break, and I hope you'll join us in the future for more stories. Until then, thank you for listening to Kitchen Table Magic.